it's Yona Bud. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best, so I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. On this episode, we start off talking about how to build bridges in life and why it's important to be a good communicator. Building on that, we talk about the importance of talking to your children about their mental health and giving them the tools to deal with it. Why delivery drivers are targets for violent carjackings. And it's been five years now since cannabis was made legal in Canada and the policy is in desperate need of an update. How much does it hurt businesses and consumers? And how does it deal with the black market? So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help make you be at your best. First segment, we're going to talk about uh, bridges to communication. How you, how you, how you under, how do you build a bridge when one person's on one side of the subject and the other person on the other side of the subject? How do you, how do you make that work in the workplace and in life? And uh, that's what we're kind of talking about. So if you've ever had an experience, if you ever remember a time when you and someone perhaps that you worked with were on the other side of, of, of an other side of a disagreement, other side of a, of a subject where, you know, you felt one way, they felt another you know, how were you able to communicate? I mean, how, did you, how did you do that in a way that uh, hopefully kept the relationship open such that you couldn't, you know, that you could continue to work together and be colleagues? So let me tell you how I learned about Bridges. About 12 years ago or so, it was uh, October, around now, um, Jewish holidays were a little later in the year. Uh, it's a, it, this was a story that takes place around uh, Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. <clears throat> and... Um, I wake up one morning and I can hear the uh, yelling and screaming in the kitchen uh, of my uh, of my place. And I go downstairs and my youngest son and my or one of my sons and my wife are having a disagreement. And they're having a disagreement around whether he should be allowed to take the car, being that it's a Jewish holiday. And she thought it was a horrible idea. And it's daddy's car. And, you know, how, how what are people going to think if they see it on the road? And how are they going to feel about that? Anyway, I come down in the middle of this and it's not, a, they're not having a good time. This is like a fair amount of, of voices being raised. I interject. I get in the middle of it. My son and I go right at it. I'm telling him this is disgusting. This is, can't do this. This is horrible. Like, that, you know, just saying things that looking back, obviously, I wasn't very happy with. Anyway, we had this huge fight as I and I, I'm getting ready to go to synagogue, right? I'm getting ready to go and and and, and make peace with my maker, so to speak, and my find my tranquil, my tranquil space. And you know, this argument just put me in such a horrible spot. Now, I lived in a building where there's eleven stories up, and you don't use elevators during high holy holy days and Sabbath if you're at the level of observance that I was at that time and still am. Uh, but you know, this whole thing was just so upsetting. And I, it, it just, and I remember flying down the stairs and just being so upset and just, you know, my guts were killing me and I had a headache. And you know what I mean? You kind of understand this. Run into my friend along the way. His name is Zale. I said to Zale, like, he says to me, what's the matter? You can see I was distraught. I quickly told him the story about the situation and so on. He tells me that I'm completely wrong. Everything I'm thinking is wrong. You know, my, my son, is, you know, there's no reason why he can't use the car. I'm trying to speed up the story here for you just a little bit. Anyway, I realize that I'm wrong. I go running back to the to the condo, go upstairs to, to my unit, call my son over, explain to him how I'm wrong and how this was, you know, something I shouldn't have done. 
and uh, we began talking about it. And he was on one side of the equation. I was on the other. Now, Zale said to me, you need to go build a bridge, not create a divide when you're talking about little levels of observance, right? Because we kind of came to this late in life. My kids came to it late in life, something we adopted, you know, as they were teenagers and so on. So everyone had their own views and opinions at this stage. My son and I had a talk about it. He decided he was going to walk to synagogue with me. We had a lovely walk. He came back. We had lunch. He took the car and off he went. That's when I learned about building bridges. Okay. So how many of you have had experiences in the workplace where you could have used some kind of bridge, where there was a lack of understanding, a difference of opinion, or just a lack of the ability to communicate effectively to address the issues that were at hand, right? So as with my son and I, we built a bridge through learning to understand each other on two sides of, a, of, of, a, of, a, of an equation, two sides of a, of a subject, right? That's what we're talking about. We need to define what a bridge in the workplace is. A bridge is a connection between two people or groups that helps to improve communication and understanding. That's what we're talking about. A way to bring two sides closer together and create a foundation for collaboration as opposed to argument. You feeling me so far? So how do you create a bridge like that? Well, one way is through positive communication. So if you ever had a situation like this where two of you could have had some kind of communication, I want to hear from you. We're going to talk about this later on in the show. You're welcome to call in or text 877-399-9898. We'll take calls in the last quarter of the hour. So we're looking forward to hearing from you. But how do you build these bridges? Ever had this situation happen to you? Well, one of the ways you can you can do that is you, you need to show you need to show respect to each other in the communication, in the, in the conversation. Let's not call it a communication, a conversation. You need to use positive language. You need to show some form of understanding and, and appreciation for one another. Like, you know, like if you ever remember debate school when you were younger, if you learned how to debate when you were in, 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 uh, in public school or in school, in grade school, you know, one person's on one side of the equation, the other person on the other side of the equation, right? And they work together to, uh, to compete with one another, right? And come up with a way that uh, that they that they one says you know pr they're pro something the other is, is against something and they argue at their point and then the audience can decide who won the debate. Well, it's sort of like that, right? But you need to build bridges when you're building these bridges. Empathy, understanding someone else's perspective is critical. So when debating with somebody, it's very important that you understand their perspective, right? The same too in a conversation. So positive communication helps you in the workplace and also helps you at home. Let me give you some tips, okay? Give me some quick tips on how to develop positive communication or build a bridge when two of you are on other sides of the, the conversation. You don't want to build a bridge when there's a great divide. You want to build a bridge ahead of the great divide. You want to be able to bridge, build that bridge in the midst of the conversation by being by listening to them, by being an active listener, right? Meaning that you're going to listen to what they have to say, not quickly look to jump in and say what you need to say. Show respect. Everyone gets a, to, to have an opinion, right? A feeling. Show respect for their feelings and opinions. So active listening, show respect. Don't be afraid to ask questions. As a matter of fact, when you ask people questions, it shows so much respect for the fact that you're listening to what they have to say, and it means something to you. And if you can write down those questions, it's even better. It even shows a, a greater level of understanding and respect. Be careful with your body language. Hands crossed means you're not very open. Arms open, you're much more open. And when you're speaking to somebody, speak clearly, right? Speak clearly, concisely. Use statements that start with I instead of you, you, you. 
And while you're doing it, be very mindful of your tone. You know, if you're talking to one of your kids, for example, and you're an adult and your kids are little, you know, any, just you showing up is enough to be, to be dominant. Raising your voice is just overkill. And raising your voice adult to adult, no one listens to what you have to say when your voice is raised. So be careful of how you say what you say and avoid making assumptions. Don't assume that you know what the other person's thinking or feeling. Don't, oh, I know how you're feeling. No, that, that just makes people more uncomfortable. Don't be defensive, right? Don't be defensive. You know, you have an opinion, they have an opinion. You don't have, you know, just, just be open and understanding and give everybody a chance and always be honest in your communication. So by using positive language, active listening and empathy, adopting some of these tools that we just talked about right now, it's going to make a difference in your life and in, in the harmony in your life personally and in terms of, of your work opportunities, right? People are going to like to work with you more when you're easier to get along with. So hopefully that helped you just a bit in terms of uh, learning how to build some bridges. Critical in my life. It makes a difference every day. Anyway, coming up, uh, we're going to talk to youth about a, a program designed for youth that helps them deal with mental health issues. It's kind of a bit of a, of a, of a grade program. Uh, we're going to get to somebody who's working to help make the kids' lives a little easier. So we have a, a guest that's going to join us. So stick around. We're going to talk some more about this. It's, a, it's really a, a really remarkable organization. Um, and I think it's very important that you understand what's being done to improve youth mental health. Because it's a big deal, right? We're always talking about how kids are just a little upset and, you know, not a little upset. They're quite upset. And and what are we doing to try to make their lives a little bit better? So I think that's so critical uh, for us to share today. We're going to talk about a really good organization, charitable organization, that's designed to make kids' lives easier and better as it relates to the discussion and the sharing of information around mental health. You know, we want to show, talk to you about an organization that really postures people at their best. And the organization is called Jack.org. And let me read you a little bit about them. It's a Canadian charity, and they work in partnership with young people to build communities and systems that support youth mental health. Through its programs, young people gain access to knowledge, skills, and the platform that they need to build their mental health literacy, support their peers, build networks of belonging, and influence systems that are meant to support their well-being. Its goal is to build a world where young people are mentally healthy and where distress becomes a thing of the past. Wouldn't that be wonderful? They have a new national campaign for youth mental health. It's showing young people how they can get equipped with the skills they need to deal with the struggles with mental health. It aims to train and empower Canadian youth about mental health and wellness. Imagine being a kid, right? Being a teenager and having some stuff going on in your head and really having nobody to talk to. I mean, the adults in your life probably don't understand. The last thing you want to do is go to your parents, typically. And talking to your peers can sometimes help a little bit. But now with some training and some extension to materials and modules and information, Jack.org makes it so much simpler for young people to talk to each other about the stuff that bugs them, about the things that scare them in terms of their mental health and some of their anxiety issues and so on. It employs language and tone of target audience with messaging across social platforms. Uh, it runs uh, ads where it um, talks about friends opening up to one another. It's, a, it's an initiative on a, on a big scale. It's a certificate program for young people. So I have with me tonight Rowena Pinto. She is the president and CEO of Jack.org. Rowena, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. 
It's a pleasure indeed. Wow, what a great organization. I happened to be somewhere a few weeks ago at a business meeting, and someone um, who was uh, is a supporter of yours of your organization. Uh, we were talking about uh, we were talking about some stuff, and he says, "You know, have you ever heard of an organization called Jack.org?" And I said, "No, what do they do?" And he begins to tell me. And then here you are, because I was so impressed. I learned a little bit more about your organization, and I'm so impressed with what you do as a, as, as, a, as an organization, as a group, and I really wanted to have you out here. Um, Rowena, let me get right to it. it um, do you see, I mean, obviously during the pandemic, we were talking about young people, youth in particular, teenagers, and having a very difficult time being you know, uh, locked down and being secluded away from their friends, not getting the education properly. Now, the pandemic is somewhat over in terms of how we live our lives day to day for most people. Have you seen a change in either up or downtick as it relates to youth mental health since kind of the end of this pandemic? Well, it's interesting, Yona. You know, we actually are in the midst of a youth mental health crisis, but this is a crisis that has been slowly burning even pre-pandemic. Um, so we actually um, saw suicide, suicide was the second leading cause of death amongst youth in Canada, apart from accidents, even prior to the pandemic. And consistently, um, the demographic of young people aged 15 to 24 consistently tell us that they um, are suffering with their mental health or substance abuse. And they struggle more than any other demographic in Canada. So um, you're exactly right. The pandemic made things a lot worse. Um, if anybody can think back to those those dark days, um, the pandemic affected every single aspect of a young person's life. So it's not that surprising that mental health um, worsened during that time. Um, but it's uh, it's something that, you know, continues to be really worrisome. Um, young people are being affected by the things that are going on globally. Um, so things that are worrying adults are worrying young people even more, whether that be the climate crisis, whether that be all of the horrible news we're getting from around the world, whether that be economic insecurity or financial insecurity, the housing crises. So all of these things, because they are so linked to a young person's future, and the future can be a really scary thing when you're starting out. Um, this is all having an impact on their mental health. Yeah, I would uh, I would totally agree with you. I think this is something that's been coming a really long time, and I think the pandemic just added a lot of fire to the to the flame or a lot of fuel to the flame, so to speak. Um, Jack.org, give me a quick, uh, quick rundown on how it got born, who, where it came from, who came up with it, and what motivated uh, an organization like this, as brilliant as it is. Sure. So it isn't actually, it's an amazing organization. Um, it was actually uh, born out of tragedy. Uh, the Windler family, Eric uh, Windler and his wife, Sandra Hannington, lost their son, Jack, during his first year at university, at Queen's University, um, at the age of 18, uh, to suicide. And um, they will always say they were a happy family. Many would have said they, you know, their kids were doing great. Um, they didn't see it coming. And so um, when they actually went to the university um, to, to, you know, see, to talk to the, um, the uh, university and talk to others, they were, uh, you know, really surprised at how, um, uh, you know, many of their peers, uh, well, well, the family didn't, hadn't heard about anything being wrong with Jack, the peer, his peers had noticed. 
And it was really through a lot of research um, from that moment on that they realized that this is an actual problem amongst young people is that as young people move into their transition years, they move away from the adults in their lives, they move away from their families. And they're often with strangers, friends, colleagues, um, fellow students more than they are with their families. And, and they are often the ones who notice when their friend is struggling with their mental health. So they're, what young people told us and told the Windlers was that they needed, they needed the skills. They needed to be able to understand what was going on when they were struggling and how to actually support their friends. Um, when they were struggling with mental health. And so that's where Jack.org was born. And so we work alongside youth. They actually co-design all of our programming and they also um, deliver it in most cases. So it's a really, really special organization. One in seven young people in Canada report having suicidal thoughts. There are even more who struggle with other forms of mental distress. How many don't reach out? How many more are affected by the systemic barriers that limit access to essential mental health services? What if we could change that? As Canada's leading charity empowering young minds to rethink mental health, Jack.org strives to open the dialogue, create a supportive community, and end the stigma surrounding mental health. There you go. There's a great, uh, a great explanation for what we're talking about right now. If you're just joining us, we're talking about Jack.org, an organization that's designed specifically to help youth talk about mental health amongst each other and to others when necessary and when the, the opportunity arises, when they can reach out to get the kind of help that they need. My guest is uh, Rowena Pinto. She is the president and CEO of uh, Jack.org. Thank you so much for being here, Rowena, and hanging in with me. Um, real quick, um, Tell the listeners a little bit. Uh, there's there's something called a Be There strategy, which you talk about. Uh, it's a program for kids. Can you kind of explain it to the listeners in a simple way? Sure, absolutely. So it's called uh, the Be There Certificate org, and it's actually an online program where you can actually earn a certificate on how you can support a young person in your life who might be going through um, a mental health struggle. So before the break, you and I, you talked very much about. Um, young people are often on the front lines of hearing about when a friend is struggling with their mental health. And um, when we actually surveyed um, our, our young people around this issue, um, most of them said that they had actually been approached by a friend, a peer who had been struggling. And most of them also said that they had no idea how to support um, their friend. So this uh, online program, it only takes about two hours um, and it's very, very engaging. Um, it will actually walk you through what we call our five golden rules, um, which is a beautiful, easy to remember a framework um, of how to support a young person in your life who might be struggling with their mental health. And this includes getting them the help um, they need. I think I know you had talked about that as well as. They don't know what to do, and then mm -hmm. we, we um, don't necessarily, um, you know, uh, do the right thing. So this is very much about how to actually um, also support your friend in getting the help they need um, while not taking on um, their own mental health struggles. So it is, um, it is really, really good. I am actually the mom of uh, three teenagers, 
And I did the certificate. And let me tell you, it's really been helpful because it gives you the words of how to actually approach someone. Mm-hmm. Um, you might be noticing that their behavior has changed, right? But people mm-hmm. don't want to pry. You know, it's hard. It's you're like, how do you ask without getting the person really angry? Um, and so this this is a really, really great program that we can all do that will actually help help uh, support uh, young people and, and hopefully get to them while they're struggling versus when they're in a period of crisis. I love it. I'll tell you why I love it, Rowena, because it's, we're getting it ahead of the game, right? Like it's prevent, it's preventative. It's preventative. Correct. Uh, I'm so busy. You spend so much time with people talking about rescue stuff and what we do after the, 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 the person's broken, but this is so, so, so wonderful to hear about. Um, now, adults and kids, teenagers, they can all participate in this certificate program. How are you getting it out to people? How are people, like, I'm pretty involved. I've never heard of it. How are, How's the information getting out, and what's the plan to let more people know beyond shows that's, like mine? That's a great question. Yes. Yeah, so it actually only, well, it launched less than a year ago, um, but we've already had um, over 30,000 people um, wow. complete the certificate program. We're really, really happy that um, one yeah. of our um, our key partner is the Born This Way Foundation, which is Lady Gaga's foundation. So mm-hmm. they are helping us promote it um, across uh, North America, really. It's, all, it's available in English, French, and Spanish. But you're right, you know, like we need to let more people know. So, you know, thanks to people like you, we're getting, we're getting the um, word out as much as we can. Um, but yes, if you've done, if you want to do the pro- uh, program, there is an actual opportunity to refer a friend um, to it. So we're really looking for as many people to complete this certificate as possible. If you don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about Jack.org, or a program that helps uh, through certificate, through a certificate program, helps young people and adults learn how to talk about mental health to each other and about each other and so on. Uh, what's really critical, I think, Rowena, is, you know, I think young people, I feel that when young people get a certificate for something, it definitely empowers them with not just the knowledge, but the fact that they feel like they're able to use the knowledge. So where did, where did this certificate concept come from and, and what kind of drove that? Well, you pretty much hit the nail in the head just in the question, Yona. Um, Young people ask for this. They ask for this. So we used to we have um, a pro uh, like we have a website called be there um, dot org. And that actually walks through the five golden rules. And it was young people that came to us and said, you know what, we need a deeper understanding of how to use these five golden rules. Um, which, for example, is say what you see, you know, like make sure that you, you talk to and, and just comment and, and, and observe what you're, the changes that you're witnessing in your friend. That's an example of one of the golden rules. Um, and they said, you know, we and not only like do we need a deeper understanding and we want some opportunities to role play. We want to understand how you would work through different different, um, you know, scenarios. But at the end of it, we want a certificate. Because we want to be able to tell people we did mm-hmm. this. And mm-hmm. so it was actually through um, their request that we created this certificate program. And just recently, we actually um, we um, are constantly asking for feedback from our from our young people. And um, and we you know, some of the feedback that we got was not only did young people's um, understanding of how to support their friend through a mental health uh, struggle increase significantly, but after six months, um, over 90%, um, was it over 90% still maintained that they, that they remembered what they had learned 
And then a, um, a huge chunk of, the, of those young people had already used some of what they learned um, to support a friend. So I, I'm not exaggerating when I'm saying young people are at the front lines of, of the youth mental health crisis. So we need to equip them appropriately. So what was Rowena Pinto doing before Jack.org? I have been working in the not-for-profit area for the last okay. uh, several years, and I've also okay. I started my career in corrections, the Correctional Service of Canada. Um, gotcha. So I've been in the public sector. That's really been been my my uh, passion. Well, I can tell you, I can hear the passion in your voice. Interview a lot of people in this job, and I can hear the passion in your voice and the and the just the empathy, the understanding. You sound like a mom and 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 a businesswoman at the same time, which is just want you to know that that just exudes from you. Um, quickly, we have a little bit of time left. What can we tell my listeners? What can we tell our listeners? They're yours now too. What can they do to help? Okay, well, there's there's two big things you can, if you have a young person in your life who is interested in learning more about um, mental health, please have them contact us at jack.org. We have several programs that could, they can either be part of or they can actually help us deliver, including the Jack Talks program, which is where young people who have lived experience um, are tra- trained by us, and then they go out and they speak and help other young people learn about Mental Health 101, Mental Health Literacy, and Help-Seeking Behaviors. Um, And if you're, you know, um, a young person or an adult, please do your Be There certificate. It is really, really great. I can't, um, again, you know, uh, it's hard to really uh, express how engaging it is and how much you'll get out of it. So those are two very easy things to do. Um, but if you do know someone um, who, you, who you're noticing their behaviors changing or not mm-hmm. coming out anymore, mm-hmm. ask, you know, it's, that's yeah. all you can do is ask. And, and, and when they're, they might not be ready to talk about it, but they'll know that you're there for them. And that might be, um, make all the difference in the world. Jack.org is one of the organizations. BeThere.org is another one if you want to learn some key points. Rowena Pinto is my new friend and president and CEO of Jack.org. We're going to have you back some other time to talk about progress and, and growth. But thank you so much for being here with me tonight. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I want you to call in. If you're someone out there that delivers stuff for a living, maybe you're a cab driver, a delivery person, and, and you find yourself sometimes maybe not feeling safe. So if you're a cab driver, if you're a cab driver, then you can, you know, decide if you want to pick somebody up or not. I know there's some gray area around that, but if you show up to some place at three o'clock in the morning, it looks dark and dingy and you don't feel safe. You're allowed to tell your dispatcher, don't like the way the place looks, I'm moving on. I want to hear from you if you're in that position, if you're a driver, a delivery person, feeling a little scary, a little whatever, 877-399-9898. Give us a call or text message and uh, Leo will talk to you and then we can chat together if you'd like to. So if you're just jumping in here, uh, we're talking about a bunch of stuff tonight, but right now we're talking about the dangers of being a delivery person, especially a food delivery person, especially late at night. You know, Uber, Uber delivers whatever is open, right? So sometimes when people come home from the bars, they come back to you know their home from their friends or they're hanging out together at college kids, whatever. They want a bunch of food. They want at least a pizza, some drinks, maybe something like that, right? 
Well, the person that has to deliver that at two or three in the morning or one in the morning or midnight or sometimes 10 o'clock at night is, is scary enough or in the middle of the afternoon might get their car stolen because they got to park in a place, get upstairs, do what they do, get into the house, do what they do, get into the building, whatever they got to do. They got to get going because they got other stuff to deliver. They don't make any money. It's a volume related business. And unless you're like me and tip reasonably. These people have a really tough time, really tough time, right? Really tough time. So um, you got to bear in mind that when you're ordering food, do the best that you can to make it easy for the driver as possible, right? So you're sitting there, you're waiting. You want to tell the guy, listen, come to the back of the building. It's brighter. Come to the front of the building. It's brighter. I'll meet you downstairs. Look for me. I'm dressed in black, whatever, right? So the question here is, is there enough to be done to ensure the safety of these drivers? Because we rely on them. We rely on them. We rely on them to pick us up and deliver us to places. And more and more, we're relying on them to deliver stuff to us. So there's a growing number of people who are in this business who drop, drive these types of things, drive these vehicles and drop off food, uh, you know, packages, whatever. And in Toronto, which is what we're really talking about right now, we're talking about the situation in Toronto. There's cases, a huge rise in cases of these types of carjackings and other forms of um, of abuse towards drivers and delivery people, delivery people. So uh, uh, drivers of just uh, not just uh, delivery folks for food, but, you know, cab drivers as well. But specifically, we're focused on the folks that deliver things to your door, especially in areas that they don't feel so safe. But nowadays, according to the experts, certainly in Toronto, according to the Toronto police, there's no place that's safe. And what the problem is, is when people... Um, you know, all you got to do is follow a vehicle and it's not hard to follow an Uber or Lyft vehicle or, you know, skip the dishes kind of vehicles because they got signs on their cars that says skip the dishes or says, you know, Uber eats delivery so that they can park in certain places. And hopefully the authorities won't uh, won't uh, tag them or ticket them because they realize they're they're working folks and they're just trying to make a living. Right. Well, it also puts them in, in, in harm's way. So the, the problem now becomes what happens if someone gets to your neighborhood? I'm not suggesting you live in a bad neighborhood. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Maybe it just looks a little sketchy at night because lights are off. Who knows? But what happens if they decide they don't want to come? And there's an upward trend in these kinds of decision processes. There are people that are calling their dispatchers and saying, I don't feel safe making this delivery. Now, the hopeful thing is that there's a history of deliveries coming to your house or my house or whoever's to that address where there's been situations where no one has felt at risk. No one was put in a situation where they felt in danger. So it becomes a sort of a kind of a safe location. But I'll tell you, I've been in situations. I've done some late night podcasts. I've done some video production, uh, been parts of video production late at night in some of the warehouse locations in downtown Toronto, Vancouver, the same. You know, that's where some of the, a lot of the funky spaces are, right? That's where a great place where all the photographers are and a lot of the, the session the session houses for podcasts and video casts and so on. So I, I can imagine, you know, I remember times where we've ordered food or pizza at, you know, 12, 12, 30, 1 o'clock in the morning. Some guy's delivering it to a sketchy part of town because these factories, warehouse buildings are usually not in the prime part of town until they eventually become gentrified. And, of course, you know, where that what that story looks like. So it's it's thinking about 
the delivery. It's thinking about the person making the delivery and, and just not expecting that it shows up, right? It, it used to be interesting when I was a kid. I used to think that the phone system just worked great because whenever you press zero and the operator just showed up. Remember, there used to be operators. Operator, they just kind of showed up until I realized they had to actually get to work. I actually met people that worked in that business and eventually saw what a operating, what a, what an operator center, what an operation center looks like and so on. Right. So you never know what's behind the screen, so to speak. You never know what's behind the, the, the drape. And if you're not driving a vehicle for a living, like a lot of these folks are that we're talking about, you have no concept for what it's like to pull up to a place and feel really uncomfortable. I don't know. I, I've been in situations where I've had to go do rescues and such. And even though I, in those days when I did that kind of work, I traveled with a couple of guys that worked for me that were just, you know, very big and very scary and very dangerous when necessary. But even then, we drove into places and I'd look at them and go, guys, like, you know, I know we got to go save a life here, but this place is super sketch, right? Well, I'll tell you something. In, in looking at the downtown Toronto scene and the scene around Toronto, there are certain areas that aren't very well lit. There's certain areas that are more known for violence and so on. Yet people are still getting their food delivered. And the folks that are delivering it are delivering not for a whole lot of money. Because I'll tell you, for the most part, people don't tip very much. And when they do, it's, it's usually not enough to put together an hourly wage that's almost livable. Right? We're going to hear from Allison in Toronto. Hi, Allison. How are you? Oh, not too bad, my dear. I'm driving in my car because of certain situation in the house and the apartment. But just as you were talking about the Uber and the delivery, I just saw a young man at the, the Louisiana place picking up an order. He's on a bicycle. He's one of the, the, the young men that the government brought in the country, have a knapsack on his back and a phone in his hand to lay to the black. So he's doing a two-fold order. And, you know, it's, it's really just as you're talking. I spoke to him. I said, what are you doing with this order? He said he's delivering it. I said, but, you know, you should be indoors. This is cool, you know. <laughs> Allison, you're lovely. Thank you so much for calling. I really appreciate you checking in. Everyone needs someone like Allison in their life, that's for sure. But I'll tell you, that's you brought up a really good point. Let me let me take it over from here. I'll leave, you brought up a really good point, Allison. Here's a guy on a bike making a late-night delivery. Talk about being at risk. You know he's got food and he's got money. He's either going to have food in the bag before the delivery or money after the delivery. Now, often it's, it's you know, it would only be small tip money, even though you usually pay for it over the app. But the guy's walking around, I'm sure, not with nothing in his pocket. Now he's got to tie up his bike, hope that he comes back his bike. Tell you how many bikes have been stolen as a result of these kinds of delivery folks. So um, it's not just the drivers of vehicles. It's anybody who's in this delivery process. So what are we going to do about it? We're going to make sure that we make it easy for them to make a delivery and that it's a safe delivery. We do the best we can. We're going to tip better because we know that these people are at risk in terms of the job that they do. So give them a little bit more. And you're going to do what you can to make the delivery as easy as possible. Show up at the door. Make sure the front of your house is lit up and so on. Leave room in the driveway if possible so they can at least park somewhere close or let them know where to park where it's a safe place. I let the, my people know that they're coming to deliver anything here that park at the back of the building. It's safer, easier to get into and so on, right? But listen, folks, doesn't just get there. Someone's got to deliver it to you. Show some love, show some empathy, some understanding. And if you're out there doing the job yourself, 
please be safe. Pay attention. If you don't like the way it looks and it's creepy, just don't go. So imagine you witness something. You witness something horrible. You're walking home from work or you're coming, driving down the street and you witness a horrible crime. And let's say the crime is a, a physical assault. Perhaps, uh, you know, someone, you see someone getting beaten up or getting stabbed. That's happened to me in the past, seeing someone beaten up on the street. And, uh, you know, I, I, I do what I can and sort of uh, try to call, I call 911, try to participate. And from time to time, had to be witness to certain things. Not really a big deal for me, but for a lot of people, being a witness to something, giving evidence, coming to court, all of that stuff is super scary. Super scary. People have never been to court before. They don't know what it's like. People are going to see them and watch them. And, you know, a lot of people are very uncomfortable coming forward. So this uh, recently here, a judge ruled that a dangerous and untime, untime, ultimate, excuse me, a dangerous and ultimately stupid decision that a man made, accused man that was accused of murder, what he did wasn't illegal, according to the judge. Stupid, something you shouldn't do, but not illegal. What he did is he ended up taking a picture of one of the lead witnesses in his murder trial and superimposed a rat over the picture. So the question I have for you, and you're welcome to call in right here, right now, 877-399-9898, text or call. The question is, should we do a better job of protecting witnesses? And the world of social media, does that provide us with more or less security, do you think? That's the question. So it talks about an inst- the, the conversation is around an Instagram post of a Toronto murder witness as a rat. It was stupid and thoughtless, according to the judge, but not illegal. So he was he made a reckless mistake by posting a rat over the face of of this person and then posting it online for close to 100,000 viewers that this person had. And the judge thought he, you know, clearly that it was it was depicted that the guy put this up for the purposes of generating more listeners or more, excuse me, more viewers, more followers. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily designed to intimidate the witness. Now, come on. Okay, like, come on, you're you're that person now. You've now given witness for some some horrible situation, something you saw. You're doing your your civic duty. You're doing your the humane thing by giving out information, by helping, you know, find the accused or giving out information when you know the accused is guilty, providing you know information to the police and ultimately in court. What protection do you have? Well, there are things like publication bans and so on. So names of witnesses and jurors and such aren't listed. But this guy took a picture of a witness somehow and superimposed it. Had access to a picture of one of the witnesses and superimposed a picture of a rat. Now, if you've watched any mob movies, any gangsta films, you know that a rat is someone that's not deemed to be uh, a nice person. Someone who tells a story, rats somebody out, so to speak, right? Someone who gives someone up. Well, it's kind of the right thing to do when you when you do witness a crime, but at what cost? So here's the problem. We live in a world where many communities feel unsafe about sharing information about things that they see. So 
if you find, for example, I've been involved in situations where I've worked with communities that were affected by youth and gun violence and shootings and deaths and, and, and assassinations and stuff within certain communities with certain gang groups and so on, where some innocent people from time to time were, were collateral damage in, in, their, in their war of whatever it is they were against each other for. Some, these days, the kind of violence comes more from ego and more, again, from stuff being posted online. You know, one faction or another says something bad about somebody's girlfriend or mother. The next thing you know, people are or young people are run, roaming around with guns that they don't know how to shoot, right? And they're they're out there creating situations. And there are many people within certain communities, many communities that actually see or you know have some information about the violence and about who might be perpetrating, who might be causing the violence, who might be involved in the situation, but don't want to speak. And they don't speak because they don't feel safe. So if you saw a horrific event, if you saw a robbery, a murder, or a beating, or something, or someone hit somebody by car and, and, and drive on, what would you do? Would you say, I don't want to get involved? Are you going to be at your best by getting involved or not getting involved? Which suits you better? Would you do so even if you thought that your, your, your safety was at risk? If there was a potential that it was going to have negative repercussions on you or your family? That's what witness protection programs are all about. When people give up information on organized criminals and those that have a deep reach or long reach that they can get out and, and harm folks and their families. So in this situation, the judge felt that it wasn't against the law for this person to have chose the rat and put an insulting name, you know, an assaulting picture over the over someone to to uh, to uh, kind of depict them as, as a rat, as a snitch, if you will. Well, the problem then becomes if we don't say anything and we don't want to get involved, right? We don't want to get involved. Then what do we do? What goes on? How do those people ever become, you know, ever become, uh, you know, ever get what's due them, right? Uh, so here's the situation. So uh, I was a victim of an assault. Here's a text message. A victim of assault. I was willing to testify in court, but I didn't want my name released to the accused. No way. She was. A, this person was assaulted with a weapon, and that's my friend Steve. <coughs> and um, we go on to talk about this. So here's a great. That's a, thanks, Steve. I really appreciate the text message. Uh, call in if you have something to say as well. If anybody's interested, eight seven seven three nine 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 eight nine eight. So the question is, would you would you would you show up? Would you do the right thing? Would you give evidence? Would you give testimony? Would you get involved? That's the real issue here, right? Do we get involved or do we not get involved in situations like this? One has to ask themselves, you know, the what what's what's better? You know, it's better to just keep myself quiet or try to make a difference. And and the, the scenario is that the, a lot of people, especially in in uh, in gang violence situations, in organized crime situations, you know, it's very obvious that people are, are try to intimidate you the best they can so that you don't give that information, you don't give that evidence. So for the most part, people don't want to get involved because they don't, they, they're, they're fearful of the repercussions. We all know the police want to do their very best, right? People want to do their very best. But at the same time, they also don't want to put themselves at, 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 you know, in a, in a, a position of harm, in, in, in harm's way in, in any way, shape, or form, right? So someone writes me a message here. If you rat on me, that makes me guilty. Shouldn't a lawyer have shut the case off 
shut uh, the case of guilty to the to the court. Not sure I understand the message specifically, but the answer is: Should someone have done something to protect the witness? The answer is absolutely yes. So the court set up to do so. This is something that slipped through the cracks. So if you're thinking about getting information or evidence in a case, don't don't succumb to the fear that there's going to be repercussion. Do what you can to protect yourself. Make sure before you give that information to police that they give you some reassurance that you're going to be safe, that you're going to be anonymous, that no one's going to find out who you are and what they're going to do to protect you. Make sure you negotiate. You don't just have to give up the information and feel uncomfortable at the end of it because you feel unsafe. Doing the right thing is only the right thing if it's the right thing for you too, not just what's right for the community at, at, a large, at large, right? So that's really what we're talking about. So tell me what you think. Love to hear from you, text message. And um, if you're thinking about giving up some information, just protect yourself, but do the right thing. You got to sleep at night one way or the other, right? As soon as we come back from break, it's been five years since cannabis became legal in Canada. If you're in the business, you're having a real hard time making a living. You know, whatever was supposed to be this panacea, this great way to, to riches and, and, and a wonderful new life in the cannabis industry, not working out so well. The only people making real money here are the, is the government. You know, there was a time about five or six years ago, seven years ago, I was heavily involved with people that really wanted to get into the cannabis game with growers and so on, uh, working on the angle of, um, I, I was working on the medical marijuana side, working with doctors and folks uh, that, uh, practitioners that needed to understand the impact of cannabis, THC and CBD on uh, patients in different forms, how it can be used for the benefits of, uh, of uh, treating mental health like anxiety, sleep, sleep, you know, be having sleep issues, the depression, eating disorders, you know, traumatic stress. Many, many, many soldiers coming back from war. They're they're one of the primary programs for that the government provides free of charge to soldiers is cannabis. And uh, under the care of a doctor uh, when it was medical, and I guess uh, now there still seems to be some form of oversight. <clears throat> but there are that is you know the government pays for soldiers and people with post-traumatic stress coming from the war um, with cannabis as a solution, as a medical intervention for their trauma and so on. So it's been a long time since this industry has taken off and it's still not taken off. It's been over five years. Cannabis store owners, especially in Ontario, I know in BC, not much different around the country. Uh, they're continuing to struggle to, to, to make ends meet. It just, you know, the, the thousands and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars it costs to open to open a facility. I remember back in my day, it was millions of dollars to open to open a grow facility. Uh, many of the people just couldn't couldn't survive the, the the green tape, red tape, whatever you want to call it, in terms of making it all happen. Um, but with me tonight is uh, an expert, uh, both in terms of the laws related to mental to uh, cannabis. His name is David Ellison. He's the owner and uh, uh, cannabis curator at uh, Scarlet Fire Cannabis here in Toronto. Um, very, very uh, well-known guy to me. I refer a lot of patients to him for the medical use of marijuana because he's so knowledgeable. David, thank you for being here with uh, so late at night. Appreciate you staying up and uh, being a part of this with me. Thank you, Yona. I, I always enjoy speaking with you and being, being with you. I appreciate that. So how's it been since you opened your store? It was kind of like the panacea. You were practicing law and uh, things were going really well for you. You decided to get into cannabis business. 
tell me what that's been like. Uh, it, it's as a cannabis store owner, it's very difficult. As an independent owner, it's 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 very difficult. Uh, and and uh, a large reason of the difficulty is that uh, we have uh, regulations in Canada that just don't work and don't make sense. So, what are those issues? Explain those to the listeners, please. Well, if if we look back at when we talk about regulations, we, we really need to talk about the policy reasons or, or, or the policy behind those regulations. And, and the reasons for the policy reasons for legalizing marijuana was, one, to give Canadians safe access to cannabis, and two, to take the business out of uh, the hands of organized crime. And, uh, you know, what we see is that, that regulations don't do that at all with with the uh, black market still holding forty percent of the of the market share in in Canada, and and that's controlled by by organized crime. Uh, we also have a problem where uh, the government, both provincial government and federal government, are taking you know, way too much of the money. Um, fifty cents, about fifty cents of every dollar that you spend on cannabis goes to goes to the government. And the government is earning more than the growers and the uh, stores put together. Wow. So, okay. So, what does that mean to the? What does that mean to? The, I, I know what it means to you as a cannabis operator and a store owner and so on. What's that mean to the consumer? How does that impacting people like you know the people that are coming to buy cannabis for recreational purposes or for medical purposes? How is that impacting them? Well, it, it impacts them in in, in two ways. Um, one, we 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 have a, a really bifurcated market. We have a legal market, and we have a very robust black market. Uh, the black market is is cheaper to buy cannabis on the black market. It's cheaper than buying it on the legal market. The problem is, and the what the average consumer doesn't realize is that black market cannabis is full of mold, full of microbial contaminants full of base metals, full of pesticide residues. And I can tell you that uh, uh, probably every single sample of black market cannabis you pick up has ultra-high levels of microbutanol, which is, a, which is a pesticide residue, which when you heat, turns into hydrogen cyanide. It's not, not really oh, something you want to be ingesting into your body. And like forever? Like, I mean, for people that long before weed was legal uh people were buying it from their local buddies and guys they knew that were growing up the street or whatever um always tainted or is this just something that's come now as a as a as a contra to legal weed that that's a great question yona and and you know the longer that i work in the legal market the more that i realize i consumed uh, and what I call the black market cannabis is poison because that's what it is. I consume poison for, for 30 years. So when we look at one of the policy reasons uh, that cannabis was legalized was to give people safe access. So all of the cannabis that you would purchase at a licensed store is uh, uh, complies with, the, with Health Canada regulations, which includes the testing of that cannabis to make sure that there are low levels of mold, there are low levels of microbial contaminants. Uh, in fact, um, you know, most 
legal cannabis is irradiated, just like our fruits and vegetables are, to get rid of that the mold and microbial contaminants. Um, you know, organic cannabis is not, but it's clean enough that it can pass the stringent testing without being irradiated. Um, um, but but yes, it always has existed, and that was one of the key reasons of legalization is to make sure that the cannabis that's going around uh, is 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 safe for consumption. So let me ask you something. If anybody's been in a major city like Toronto, Vancouver, Winnipeg, any major, you know, any place, you know, Calgary, Edmonton, you you know, you walk, you, you go to a place looking for a pot store, looking for a, a cannabis, a, a licensed cannabis store. And along the way, you find six on the way to the one that you Google. And then on the way away from there, you can find another six or seven headed down the street and around the corner. What else? Where else have we seen this kind of concentration? Because the, the concept of competition makes it almost impossible for folks that have you know a place that's surrounded by other operators. How do they make a living? How's this? How's this supposed to work? Well, you, I think yeah, you, you, you hit it. You, I think you hit things right right on the head, and that and that we have a over concentration and oversaturation in the cannabis market now. Uh, if the government took steps to enforce the black market, to uh, uh, get rid of dangerous cannabis, to get rid of cannabis that is being pushed on us by organized crime, that takes away 40% of uh, customer or it deals with 40% of customers that are not buying from the legal market. So if we eliminate the black market, we imme- will immediately generate sufficient, I believe, sufficient amount of, of money in the legal market to keep the legal players alive. And as, as we know uh, um, from, a, from a recent Financial Post article, right, right. 80% of market participants in cannabis are not getting a cash flow positive, right? We know that almost 50% of uh, the companies that went into CCAA protection in 2022 were cannabis companies. First thing would be to get rid of the excise tax or at least greatly reduce it until the industry is much more mature. The other thing that the federal government could do is relax the restrictions around marketing. So right now there are um, really almost no opportunities to do any kind of mass marketing of cannabis and uh, limited opportunities to do very focused marketing and promotion. So there you go. There's a leading uh, legal expert on the situation with the Canadian Cannabis uh, Act, the cannabis law. David Ellison is my guest this evening. He's the owner and cannabis curator of Scarlet Fire Cannabis Company. Also, he is a lawyer, smart guy. He's well-educated in the laws around uh, cannabis uh, operators and so on. David, thank you for being here with us tonight. You know, listening to the clip, you know, you guys can't advertise. You can't show your stuff in the window. You got to actually close the window off to people can't actually see into the store. You know, they charge through the roof in terms of taxes. You're really set up to fail. And that's exactly right, Yona. The entire system is set up to fail. And when you have government that has taken in a billion dollars in taxes, according to the to to, to a financial post article, uh, uh, and and 80 percent of the industry participants aren't reaching cash flow positive. That's one. It's a really bad look 
on the yeah. industry and, and, yeah. and the, the government regulation of the industry. And when you have an industry that is failing so poorly, it's really upsetting to see how slow the government has been to react to that. Well, yeah, but you know what? This, you kind of said it yourself, and so does, do we see it in the clips and the news that we're reading and hearing about. The government's making, you know, like you say, 50 cents on every dollar. What's their motivation for change? Well, this is, this is, the, well, this is the problem. Now, if we lowered the amount of the excise tax and we lowered the amount that the governments were, were taking, and, and you know, I will say that there really is one criminal in this industry, and, and I believe that criminal is our government, uh, uh, because they are uh, really raking in cash hand over fist while uh, people are really struggling out there in this industry. Uh, um, and, and, that's, and that's a serious problem. So the medical users, um, people who require cannabis or use cannabis in their medical regime, um, for them, the, the markets changed immensely. I remember way back when, when medical weed was available, um, you know, it was more cost effective. There weren't so many users. The quality of the product was really, really great. Uh, we've kind of lost all that. So is, do you see, do you see a, a, a what do you see as a, as a um, outcome? of the current scenario and what is it that you and your colleagues are hoping the government will do? So the outcome, the outcome is any outcome is not going to come fast enough. And, and, and I think we've, we've seen that um, the review of the cannabis act is supposed to happen three years into legalization. It didn't start uh, until the fourth year. Uh, and all that they have released at this point is a summary of what, of what they've heard. So, so I don't have, I'm not optimistic about an outcome, but uh, we do need a far lower excise tax. That's 100% for sure. Um, uh, in terms of marketing and advertising, I don't think that is going to make a huge difference. Um, um, but I also think that it's not just the Health Canada and the excise t Health Canada uh, uh, regulations and health and the, the federal excise tax. It's also the amount that the provinces are taking and uh, the, the provincial regulated wholesalers. If we look at, you know, compare Ontario, which has uh, the Ontario Cannabis Store as the provincial wholesaler, which all retailers are required to buy from, and we look at Saskatchewan, which has private, distribu uh, private distributors, it's a far better model. It's a far efficient, more efficient model. Uh, cannabis is, is cheaper to the consumer, and retailers are doing better. In, in so, BC and Alberta, for example, your yeah. stores are allowed to purchase directly from craft growers. Right in Ontario, in Ontario, it is it is just a mountain of red tape and a mountain of costs uh, with the OCS. And and if we look at the number of employees that are on the Sunshine List at the OCS, uh, it, it it's really concerning when we look to see at how private enterprise is doing. So um, <laughs> let me understand this. So you know, my under my so wh why. Why is it province by province? So the, it became legal in terms of a it, it was a federal uh, a federal law. It became legal according to federal law. Province by province, they operate differently. So those that are operating in Ontario, who perhaps like you are, are having a much harder time than those that are operating in other provinces. Um, how do they? How do? How does the government of Ontario make a claim that 
their their style or their their methodology makes any sense to anybody. Well, well, I think I think that the province of Ontario has been criticized, and the OCS has been criticized, uh, of, um, one by by the Ontario Auditor General, uh, which is very critical about, especially with the amount of money that that the OCS is taking. Uh, the way things are divided, Jonah, is that while. Uh, cannabis is legalized under federal law. The distribution of cannabis and sale of cannabis to consumers is governed under provincial law. So we have one uh, regime, federal regime at the top, which deals with the legalization of cannabis, uh, the, the, the cultivation, the production, the packaging, etc. And then we have a second regime, which is the provincial regime, and it's different in every province, which deals with the distribution. So tell me about, um, tell me about what your plans are. You know, you're, uh, Scarlet Fire is a, a, it's a, a small operation here in Toronto. Um, why are, by the way, why would people come to you versus, you know, a pot store, you know, two blocks away? So, so we have developed, we've been very lucky in, in, in developing a very good and loyal client base. And that's because uh, we look for craft growers. We look for small independent growers. We do not buy uh, corporate product. Um, we buy, we, we look for products that, that um, we're the, the cultivator, we're the processor, pays a little more attention to detail. Um, and, and also, you know, my staff at Scarlet Fire, the level of proficiency, I think is higher than you'll find at, at most places. And, and people want, people come to us for that level of proficiency. You know, uh, so it's a, we... really a matter of differentiating yourself from the, the cannabis stores that, that appear on every single corner in the city. So uh, before I let you go here, I've read, I read something, and I'm sure you did too, uh, in the paper not recent, uh, recently last week, that a lot of the folks that are growers, a lot of these growers that have spent mega millions of dollars to provide a grow facility are now looking at growing other things other than cannabis to survive. Uh, what's that tell everybody? I, I, I think what it says is that we have a failed regulatory regime, that that the, the regulatory, one, it has not made cannabis safer. It has not uh, uh, taken the business out of out of organized crime. Uh, and, and we have a failed industry in terms of uh, the economies of that of that industry. Uh, you know, I can tell you from my own experience, what I'm doing right now is I'm starting to practice law again, uh, because, you know, you, there's no way I can continue to to support my, my myself and my family off off the income I'm earning off the store. Um, and I'm hearing that more and more. David, I can't thank you enough for being here with me tonight. We'll have you on again as this uh, policy starts to change, hopefully, or the act gets uh, gets uh, re, uh, re, uh, rejigged in some fashion. So thank you so much for being here. I really uh, appreciate thank, thank you very Excellent much, John. I, I, I really enjoyed being here.